Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast coming at you live from downtown Salt Lake City of all places. Yeah. And, uh, and not only that, but rare opportunity to do a podcast in person and, uh, doesn't happen very often, but I've got Justin Gordon who, man, there's a lot to explain here. Cause we had, <laughs> we had a podcast recorded like, well, 21 weeks ago, probably when I posted that last post we were just looking at and, uh, yeah, it was it was over the phone and it's always, we were just talking, it's always hit or miss. You know, I have 99% of my episodes are just guys calling in and, uh, and it's always, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not, you know, and it's whatever. Most of the time I don't care cause it's just a free podcast. Yeah. I don't care, but, um, no, this one, the, the one we recorded before was just, you know, I listened to it enough and it was just, it, it would have drove me crazy. I don't ever, I don't ever listen to my own episodes. Uh, if that surprises anyone, I don't, I was there. I don't need to re-listen to him, but, but I knew on that one I needed to. So anyway, I was in town and I've been sitting on that podcast episode for a while now, three or four months, whatever it's been. And so I was in town and it just hit me like, man, I want to get that one re-recorded with Justin. So, um, here I am. How you doing, buddy? Excellent. It's fun to be, uh, glad you're in town. It's Thanksgiving. I can't believe it's Thanksgiving. Yeah. 2019. Already. Yeah, I'm glad we could connect though, because this is the time of year where I just sit and dream <laughs> and I can't really let out or or my emotions around hunting are, are uh, a little bit stifled. So are you like me this time of year where if you were to hand me another tag right now, like, of course I would go. In fact, I, I'll, I, I am going my work long story, but my work came up with a tag that, you know, a nice little bonus that we're going to go, uh, hunt coos deer. Nice. Yeah. Dude, down in Mexico. That's and I, the dream. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't going to pass that up. Coos deer with long range rifles. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, you know, and it's like, yes, I want to go and I'm going to go, but I'll, I would be lying if I said there wasn't a little piece of me that's just like, man. Can we just take a break for a second? <laughs> like, are you that like, are you that way like right now, like I am? Or in my life, unfortunately, no, because I would love to be in that position. Uh, but just with everything that I have going on personally, and then with work and this this year in particular, I feel very fortunate to get my one mule deer hunt in per year. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I've always dreamt about and looked at, and there have been years where I've had multiple tags in different States and just realized that maybe that's not where I'm at in my life at this particular time. And I'm okay with that as long as I can have my big mule deer hunt every year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so to, to, before we jump into mule deer, which is obviously, um, I know that's your 
I think it's your only passion, right? Do you do you hunt anything else? Do you as ever... far as hunting is concerned, you know, I get out, I take my kids upland and waterfowl hunting once or twice a year because I love that. But it's just if you there's just so many days in the year, yeah, and and so I have to be very selective. And mule deer is it? Mule so, deer is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, man, I I wish that I was on that level. I'm not quite. I. I can feel just the slightest little flame starting to, you know, of just focusing in on one animal being that guy, you know, but I'm definitely not there yet. I mean, this coming year, I'm, trust me, I'll put in for elk <laughs> and moose and sheep and everything. But, um, I think most of us dream to be in that situation, right? I mean, the, the day's going to come within the next few years where I'll have a desert ram tag here in Utah. And, yeah. and no matter what your passion is, like, yeah. dude, everyone's pulling for a desert sheep tag or whatever. Right? Yeah, the clock's going to stop. You know, I'm going to stop time for how many ever weeks I need to yeah. to get that done. But I think that it's interesting because I would love to pull off there a couple of places I'd like to hunt whitetail every year. There are definitely a couple of places I'd like to hunt elk every year. It just so happens that um, I don't have the opportunity to get sick of hunting, which... <laughs> You know, it, it actually keeps everything fresh for me, whether yeah. it's just shooting my bow in my basement in the, in the winters or whatever. Uh, I look at some, I, it's, I check out some of these guys on Instagram. I'm like, I don't know if I would keep the passion burning with that much <laughs> meat in the freezer. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you got to love it. Yeah. I mean, it's too. more than love, you know, it's got to be just all you think about and not that I don't, but it it's just nice to transition through the you know, the progression of a year where right now I'm just like taking a big deep breath, you know, recouping from whatever hunts I've had and just kind of reflecting on it. But trust me, I mean, I'm on the computer, you know, every day scouting next yep. year's hunts. What am I going to put in for? What points do I have? Text him, you know, my homies, like, what do you think about this or that or whatever? So, yep. yeah, it's, it's, that's all part of it. You know, it's, I, I almost enjoy the beginning as much as the end and vice versa, you know, I'm definitely in the same boat. I think five years from now, as far as I'm in the same boat, as far as enjoying that entire process, that's, that's why one 12 to 14 day backcountry mule deer hunt honestly consumes as much of my time as, as I can allow hunting to consume right now with where I'm at. Well, and we were talking before we hit record about, you know, just being a guy that hunts big deer only or big elk or whatever your, your deal is, you know, and, and how there's a common theme. It seems like, uh, with those guys that like you, like, you know, the Robbie Dennings, the Mike Duplans, the, uh, Jason Carters, you know, they, they, um, you guys limit yourselves to one, two hunts. It seems like, you know, I mean, they're, they're, a guy like Carter, who's it's where it's his job, yeah. you know, it's his profession. That's a little bit of an asterisk because, you know, he's got the time and, and has to go out, you know, and, and so he still gets it done on, I mean, that guy, you know, he'll kill a, a 220 buck and then he'll go kill a 370 bull or, you know what I'm saying? He just, yep. he's in a little bit different level, I think. Um, but, but, but still the principle's the same, you know, on his mule deer tags, he doesn't, he's not extended out on five mule deer tags, you know, he's just not. Yeah. Um, I've always looked up to those same individuals because they've spent so much time focusing on mule deer that there, you can pick up so many insights, just glean so much when they talk even for four or five minutes. 
Uh, and some of it I've had to experience to learn and some of it I've been able to learn vicariously just listening and, and hearing about their stories and then apply it in my own tactics and such. Yeah. So speaking of tact- tactics, um, you, spoiler alert, you killed it. You killed the biggest deer. You killed the biggest deer. That there's a lot I've, of controversy about where, there's how big it is. There's plenty of controversy. And when I say the biggest, like I don't, at some point I don't care, you know, what, it's it's a it's the biggest deer that I've ever seen, you know, yeah. that or anyone that I know for sure. So I don't care what anyone says. It's the biggest deer to me. So, and and more importantly, you're a guy that just consistently kills big deer. And so, um, what I had in mind here, you know, after we recorded this once, and um, you know, you, you could you could see after talking to a guy like you, there's there's two things I wanted to pull out of you. There's the story of killing that buck, you know, that hasn't been told in very many places that I think would just be awesome to hear. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, but then there's also just some tactics, you know, just general principles and stuff that you uh, go by. And so I actually am going to try to break this into two episodes so that we can keep those kind of separate so that I don't have to interrupt a story of killing a buck and be like, Oh, so, talk to us about why you chose to go on that route when you're stalking, you know, we can just sit back and listen to a, a hunting story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, tactics. I mean, and, and I like, even though you're not, you know, we're not, no one's probably leaving on a high country archery mule deer hunt when this is going to come out. Oh. Um, but you know, where, where does it kind of, which is fine. Cause this is where it starts, you know, it's like, yeah. where, where does it start for you? Um, when you're looking for a quality mule deer unit or a, place to apply uh probably where a lot of other people have mentioned but i'll kind of take you through my story a little bit um to to arrive at that point because i i I mentioned this there was something about growing up in utah in the 80s there weren't any mule deer that i remember (laughs) and so i think that's where the passion started and then it and then that carries over to looking at where big mule deer come from and everyone's talked to this, right? But genuinely looking into it, setting up family vacations around whatever national park or whatever you can find in those areas so that you can spend time and put boots on the ground, start to understand a little bit about why the mule deer, mule deer that come out of there do come out of there. Um, It's about this time of year. I mean, I'm looking at some different wintering range right now uh, in a couple of states that I haven't looked at in the past. And it seems like, well, how much winter range can you look at? But you get focused, you get a little bit myopic and you lose sight of other opportunities in different states. And so um, I did all of these same things years and years and years ago, and I just continue to go through it. In the wintertime, it's like, where are they wintering? What's going on right now in, in that area? Is, is that habitat being, cons- and it's the same stuff that we talk about globally. Is that habitat being consumed by housing? Is that habitat, you know, are there wolves being introduced that we don't know about? Uh, what else is going on out there for these mule deer? What, so when you, you talk winter range, you know, like, like choosing a unit you mean, or just, or just trying to narrow it down somewhere in the West, right? Yep. Is that what you're referring to? What, what do you use in the winter range to tell you? or to, to find out or what do you? So some web, some states have good maps that give you an idea of where the winter range is. And then there's a, it's not a scientific route. I don't have anything collared, Mm -hmm. but 
there's a means of just looking at the general drainages and some of the patterns of the mule deer and where people are hunting deer in third and fourth season in some states or late season in different states versus where you're going to see them in the summertime. And kind of reverse engineering where you think they're going to, yep, yep. most logical place they're coming yep, from. Yeah, and I can't, I can't prove or validate any of this, but I think that over the last 10 years, I've hunted deer that, that winter is 50 plus miles away from where I'm hunting them in their summer range. And when you look at the drainages and the ground that they cover to get there, it's it's very easy on Google Earth or on topo maps to say, yeah, this is where, this is how they make their route down. And that's why in this particular area, there are several hundred head of mule deer yeah. in the winter, and this is where they all disperse to. Well, I mean, and I'm, I'm trust me, I'm, if you're not an expert on this, I'm definitely not an expert, but you know, it, to me, they all, it almost seems like it's like water dispersing, you know, from the summer to the winter. I mean, generally speaking, in states like Colorado, Wyoming, uh, Utah, even a little bit, uh, you know, Idaho, they're bucks that are in that real high alpine stuff. I mean, they're going to filter down like water to the valleys, you know, yeah. one, one way or another. And like you said, it might be 50 miles. It might be 100 miles. It might be five miles. States like Nevada. They just go three miles to the valley floor, you yep. know, and that's still the same principle. It's kind of dispersing down and out like water, but. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where my stuff is. Start. I've always, and, and it started there because one of my favorite books that, that is um, Mule Deer Quest by Walt Prothero. So he's an actual biologist uh, as, as far as I remember, but he worked at Weber State University. He's, he's. Mule Deer Quest, I think, is a very well-written book as far as getting into the lives of mule deer and what impacts them and what they feed on. And And he comes at it from a hunter. Uh, he's also more of a um, academic. And so on on my book list of all the mule deer books, along with what Mike Eastman's written and David Long, the first and foremost is Mule Deer Quest by Walt Prothero. And he goes through that same process. It, to some level and 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 that book's been out since the early 90s 92 I think or something like that and that was that was the first book that I picked up when I was a lot younger yeah and said okay how do I go about locating mule deer and he kind of goes through that uh -huh. and so it's this time of year that's why a 12 to 14 day mule deer hunt in the backcountry can consume an entire year from planning, uh, you have to have backup auctions. If you don't pull a tag, if you can't find a landowner voucher, where else are you going to go to look for those vouchers or those opportunities? And there's a lot of research that goes into making sure you're in the right place come the end of August. So that's more of a, just a general, you're going to pick a mountain range type of a, a philosophy, right? I'm guessing. I mean, how do you, let's say you, you, you know, there's a good wintering ground right there and you've heard of big bucks or however you're researching that there's, you know, you've seen guys post, it, it's funny, guys are a lot more willing to post photos of like winter range bucks and even like, oh, this is right outside of, you know, XYZ city or whatever. Exactly. It happens all the time, you know. Yep. And so, okay, so you've, you've narrowed it down at that point. I mean, how are you going to the next level of, I'm actually going to put an app in for this unit? That's, that's where... Unfortunately, Google Earth has just changed the world, as, as my world, right? Because before Google Earth, it was all topo maps. And to try to get an idea of what an area looks like on a topo map, no way. I'm, 
I, I can't read a topo map that well. It says there's a spring there and it says this is green. And when I show up, it's not like that. Google Earth, I can flip through photo history and see what that's looked like in different, as you all know, I mean, there's, there's some guys out there that can, that can get in, that get into Google Earth much more thoroughly than I do, but that's it. You, this is where they're wintering. This is where all these photos are showing up all over the place. Follow the drainage. Yeah. And, and then for me, it's, uh, once I've spent enough time on Google Earth to map out how I'm going to get into the backcountry. We talk about the fact that that's really where I think I can differentiate from all the other people that may live in Nebraska and want to hunt out west, or may live in Pennsylvania and want to hunt out west. I ran into all of the above, right? And they can do a lot on Google Earth. If I can carve out a few, and I think it was Cam Haynes that coined the bonsai scouting trip thing way back when. But if I can carve out a few bonsai trips in the summertime and I can put glass on that mountain that I've been staring at all winter and spring and on Google Earth, that's a differentiator. And that's that requires, I think, the next level of commitment because I've mentioned this. I'll leave on a Thursday night from work because I work 40 to 80 hours like every other working Joe per week. You know, it depends on the week. Some weeks you're you're here from sunup to sundown and and after, and some weeks you're not. But I'll leave on a Thursday night. I will drive all night. I'll start hiking on zero sleep on Friday morning. I'll get in, and I may only have Friday night, Saturday morning, and Saturday evening the glass, and I've got to get out of there, right? Get back in a truck and drive all night. I may need to be home Sunday. I may need to be home Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. Um, that wrecks me physically, but the reward is. I mean, just being back in the country, I, my dream is to just retire and walk around with some pack llamas for, <laughs> for, for months at a time. Right. But I, that's it. I mean, it's, it's, it's no more difficult than that. There are so many people that have, that have gone in depth on how you use Google earth to scout. There are people that have gone in depth into winter range and where, where the, and, and Mike Eastman and so many others have covered all that. And the differentiator is how many little, how many mornings and evenings can I spend with glass on that mountain? Yeah. And that is where I do think there's a physical element to it. You know, people are, you know, I like some of Cam Haynes sayings, you know, I, nobody cares, work harder, or, you know, people are like, oh, you don't have to be in shape to hunt and you don't. But if you want to go wreck yourself on a weekend just to get a grand total of maybe six hours of premium glassing light and then, and then come back to work on Monday morning and, and be a semblance of yourself, uh, it, it requires a ton of physical. Well, and there's so many things there, right? Yeah, you don't, you don't have to be in shape to hunt, period, right? If that's as far as it's going, you don't have to be in shape. Uh, you don't even have to be in shape to hunt mule deer. You don't have to be in shape to hunt mule deer in the backcountry. I proved that this year. <laughs> <laughs> you don't... <laughs> you don't have to be in shape to hunt mule deer in the backcountry and kill mule deer in the backcountry. That's right. However, you don't even have to be in shape to hunt mule deer in the backcountry and kill a big mule deer in the backcountry once, I would argue, because anything can happen once, you know, event. But I'm telling you, like, if you think that you're going to go around chasing 200-inch bucks or even find a 200-inch buck or a 180 in a in a the type of units that guys like you and me are hunting, even if they take four, five, six points, 
and you're going to do that consistently more than once, uh, it's, it's just not going to happen if you're not in some decent shape, you know? And again, I'm not saying you got to run marathons. I don't, I never have ran a half marathon. There you as go. I say that. And it hurts like freaking heck every time. <laughs> and I'm like, why did I do this? Cause I don't, I won't train for them. Yep. Um, and is it technically running a half marathon if you end up walking the last four miles? Anyway. Hey man, they call them ultra marathons, but you're doing a lot of hiking in yeah. an ultra. Well, I made a joke once. I'm like, who's actually working harder? You know, someone who's in really good shape and runs an ultra or someone <laughs> like me who can't even get through a half marathon. That's ends a good up point. So I, I, the whole in shape thing, I mean, it, it depends on what perspective we're looking at it from, yep. you know, and I know you're in, you, you stay in great shape, you're in great shape. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a factor, you know, it's one piece of the pie. So. And that's where it comes that where that's where it comes into play. I mean, look, you can have a horse packer take you in during the hunt. You can have pack llamas that you work, work walk in with, which I love. That's the biggest game changer for me. We'll dive into that tactic later. But, <laughs> but um, when if you want to consistently know where you're going, and and improve your odds from opener from the opening day until you have to pack out of there. I just don't think there's a substitute for spending time in the country. Yeah. And when you don't have time, you just carve out those little, and that requires, yeah, I mean, I've, I've made it into some areas that if I had a pack on, well, I know this, with llamas, it's an all-day hike-in. I've ran in there with nothing but a spotting scope, a tent, and a sleeping bag, and binoculars, and a tripod, and maybe not quite a couple days' worth of food in less than four hours. And that, and, and that's where being in shape has changed the game. It makes it, makes it easier for me to know where I want to be and what animals occupy those, those areas. Yeah. It just, it just can't be a factor if you're going to be, you know, consistently after those bigger bucks, it just can't. Um, okay. So we, I kind of sidetracked you there, I think, but, um, so you spend, do you always scout every summer, even if it's a unit that you have hunted before you're going to go in there? Oh yeah. Yep. That's the difficult thing is, uh, I try to set up at least one trip into an area that I've never been. So I can, again, compare what I'm seeing with my binoculars, with what I see on Google. Into it, even in the same unit, you mean a different drainage or whatever. Yep. 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 Okay. But a lot, oftentimes in different units, again, I'm, uh, Planning worst case scenario, if the unit I want to be in doesn't come through, if I don't have enough points or I can't find a landowner voucher, then there's a backup where I can get a voucher. Um, so, and sorry, go back to, oh, whether or not, and, and what is always distracting is if I'm pretty sure of where I'm going to get the tag, and even if it's a unit that I've been in multiple times. I want to go see what animal, if I can find the animal in the summertime, then I think that my odds of go, my odds of killing that animal well, go up. You know, and like going into a unit multiple times, you know, there's that unit in Nevada <laughs> that we hunt and we started going in there so many years in a row that we didn't have to, we just didn't have to because, and here's, here's the asterisk, right? We weren't, on the level of hunting the biggest buck on the entire mountain range, we were just on the level of, hey, 
whatever buck, we know that there's going to be a buck. There's going to be seven bucks in this drainage, this drainage, and this drainage. There's going to be seven here and six there and five here, whatever. At that point, it, it doesn't matter. You know, if you're not, if you're not looking for that next level deer, you know, 180 plus, I don't think it matters. You hunt a unit, you know, the first year you want to go in and maybe get, get a feel for the, the unit itself. Yeah. But after that, if you find two or three drainages within uh, one hunt that holds deer, guess what? It's going to hold bucks the next year, probably. More than likely, it's going to hold bucks the next year in this, or they're going to be in this drainage or this drainage or that, you know, whatever. But when you're looking for for a buck, then it's like it's like scouting a new unit every single year, even though it's within the same unit, because you don't know if he's going to be in this drainage or that one or that one, and you can't really waste you know, you, you know, I mean, you just can't waste three and a half days of a five day hunt or whatever you have trying to locate him. You need to, I mean, you can, if you have to, but it's better if you can locate the buck in the summer. Right. Oh yeah. You just nailed it. I mean, that is, and that's uh, scouting. Maybe that's why I like mule deer a lot as well, because there's something about scouting mule deer in the summertime. That's just, I enjoy that. I don't have a bow. So I actually get a lot more photos and a lot more film um, just on my iPhone. I don't do anything crazy that there's something about scouting in the summer that I find just, it's amazing. It's easier to just take it into like, oh. man, you just enjoy being up there a little bit more because you don't have the stress of like. And, and the fun part for me is, I mean, I have, I have glassing points. I'm sure everyone does glassing points on Google earth where I've pinpointed and I've tried to, if it's a new area that I'm going into where I've pinpointed, okay, because you can do the, all the different views and angles. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, if I get here and I spend from sunup until 9 a.m. on this morning, from this point, I'll be able to glass, you know, this many drainages or these pockets. And then during the day, I'm going to move over to here. In the evening, I'm going to glass this area. In the summertime, it's difficult, though, because I think the evening hunts... Um, I think the evening glassing just isn't as productive as the morning glassing. Yeah. What, and, it, why is that? I, mean, I don't know. Big bucks just, they linger longer in the mornings, it seems like, and they're less likely to pop out before, yeah, I'm with you. It's too warm. I don't know what it is. I don't know the, the science behind it, but I do know that I want to be in the spot before the sun comes up. And then my secondary glassing spots are usually where I spend the, the evening yeah. The evening glassing. Um, I want to come back to your optic setup. Yeah. And I just made a note of that. But um, so backing up to actually choosing a unit, um, what dictates, I mean, okay, so you've you've done, let's say, you've, let's go through the progression here. You're yep. scouting a new unit. You're going to go hunt somewhere. And you've looked at, man, winter range. Like I've just been hearing or the buzz of, you know, these big bucks or, you know, guys, maybe you don't hunt four season Colorado and you know, guys are down there smoking these yeah big bucks or whatever. And you're like, man, like I'll bet you here, you know, and, and those, some of those mountain ranges would be broken up into five, six, eight, ten 10 units sometimes, you know, depending on how big the mountain range is or whatever. Um, what is it about that, that catches your interest? Does, do points matter? Are you, what, what what catches your interest about looking for a unit? Yeah, I think it's been said before, but in as far as Colorado's concerned, I think the only thing that differentiates a a zero to three point 
archery tag from a four to eight point archery tag is accessibility by motorized vehicle. Um, because meaning it, it's harder to get those units that are just flat out. You can drive to the top of the peaks kind yeah, of a thing. Yeah, yep. I gotcha. Yep. That's to me, that's the only differentiation because I've never been in a unit in Colorado where I wasn't like, damn, this is worth nine points. Yeah. <laughs> and I got yeah. here with zero. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, and they've done a good job with that, but you nailed it. I mean, two of the units that I really like in Colorado, I was led there based on what was coming out third and fourth season, right? I was, I knew people, guys like to post their stuff. I'm like, okay, I know where that guy is and I know where that animal's coming out of in fourth season. I know where those pictures are coming out of. You know what I mean? Doesn't, yeah. One right? phone call to a biologist and they'll tell you where those kind of deer winter yep. or where they summer rather. Yeah, yeah. And, and you see kind of the success and what's coming out for the four, the, those late season rifle hunts. And then on another unit, I actually just got really good insight from another archery hunter, um, that I've been into, but, but it, it it's just following that breadcrumb trail back. It's, there's no science to it. It's just, yeah. it really is, um, diligence time. Well, that was my next question is how many of those units over the years, even just outside of Colorado or wherever, have you took a chance on applied, went in, up? Uh, bombed it like this this isn't what i thought it was going to be and then moved on to another unit or has it been a lot of the same stuff yeah when you look at how many tags i've eaten just in the last 10 <laughs> 12 years um i've but i will say that that for about the last 12 years i feel like i've consistently been able to turn up good animals haven't always filled the tags no matter what unit you're in, let's, I mean, it's easy to think Colorado in our minds while we're yeah. having this conversation, yeah. I think. And so maybe yeah. that's just what we need to make it relative to, but man, like, isn't it true that those like from the North to the South and anywhere along that, you know, I don't know anything about the Eastern Plains. I know there's big bucks obviously, yeah. but, but just the type of hunting that we're talking about those high out, like, don't you think that almost any given year on Man, maybe not a hundred percent, but probably eighty percent, ninety percent of those units. There's a there's a a one eighty class buck. <laughs> Every yep. one of those units, yep. don't you think? Like, and and when we say big, big deer, I'm automatically defaulting to based on the unit. We all know what you're defaulting to. You're defaulting to. <laughs> well, and oh, so <laughs> and so and so. No, what I say that it, when I'm when I'm thinking Colorado, I'm thinking 180 plus. Yeah, and and I don't, and I really have my eyes set on 190 plus, right? But if you consistently know that there are going to be some 180 bucks out there, spending enough time behind the glass, you should turn up something that just that, that threw a nice set of antlers that year and, and clips 190, right? Um, for Utah, when I think about different units in Utah, I'm thinking in terms of. I've been able to find good bucks for that unit. And that may be a 175 buck yeah. or a 170 buck. And I've, I had that conversation. I, I actually had a chance to do a little bit of scouting in Utah this year. We spent, I spent some good days out, just haven't been able to hunt Utah, but um, because it was easy to hop in my truck and go glass early in the morning and, and uh, do some different things. Um, I, I was looking at a deer that I thought was probably a mid 170 deer. I wouldn't look at that deer for, I mean, when you talk about covering the numbers, I wouldn't look at that deer for two seconds in a unit, in some units in Nevada or in Colorado. Right. It's all relative. Yeah. But 
man, I was really stoked about that deer where I was glassing <laughs> yeah. in Utah. That reminds me of my that uh, Utah buck, and he's he's nothing. He score wise, he's nothing. You know, he's in the one fifties probably. But it was two years ago. We had just drought, crazy. You know, last year was all. This year was all moisture, right? Mm-hmm. The moist word that we all <laughs> love. The year before was all drought, you know, and so and it was tough. It was we just haven't hunted. You know, it was the first time I think in my like whatever you want to call it, you know, being adult of hunting where I actually was like, oh yeah, I'm seeing a change. Like I saw a change in patterns that I've seen over the years of like, there's just not as many big bucks. Like this is noticeable, you know? Yep. And man, I found that buck on that hunt and it was on the, the tail end of the right, the second rifle in Utah on the dedicated hunter tag. And I was like, yeah, cha-ching, like <laughs> hammer down, killed him, loved it. It was like a 200-inch buck in my mind, you know, because yep. it's all relative. But, um, okay, so so uh, before I get myself off track, because I will so fast here, but um, I want to dig in because I think there's something I can pull there that I, th- I think you're you're doing maybe subconsciously. So if we assume that, that most of these mule deer states, you know, a Wyoming, a Colorado, a Utah, definitely a Nevada, because I, you know, I just know that. Um, if almost every one of those units, I mean, Utah, you could argue up and down this state, every single unit holds a 180 inch buck at some point during the season. What is it that you choose then? Why do you choose a unit that would hold, that would, you know, whether it's a zero point unit or a three point unit, I don't think it comes down to the points for you. I think there's something else there that you're looking at on a Google earth or on X or whatever your scouting tool is, or seeing it in person. I think there's something else there that you're saying this, this is where I go. And this is why I'm going to go to this unit. With archery being my focus, one of those things has become the terrain. And you've heard people like South Cox talk about this. I've hunted plenty of big open bulls and bulls, not bulls. (laughs) (laughs) O-W-L-S. Yeah, Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Where there may be a way to get it done, but it can be tough. So some of the things that, that help narrow the unit down is... And it's, it's harder. A lot of people have commented on this. I feel like I'm, I'm saying things that I've heard a lot of people say, but it's harder to get away from people just by putting distance between you and them today. But that's the beginning of it. Um, and then terrain. Once I get there, am I just looking at a big open basin that has one terrain feature for me to cover me? And you don't mean when you first said terrain, I thought you meant rugged, you know, like, like finding the nastiest or the most, the furthest back. You mean what's actually going to give you a chance for success on a stock. Yeah. 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 Finding mule deer. Yeah. And, and once you've, and that's the other thing is the way things look on Google earth and the way they think they they look (laughs) in binoculars, having spent, quite a bit of time over the last several years with Google Earth and then going back into those areas, there are certain features that I can find on Google Earth and say, okay, that looks a lot like this area over here. And I know what that looks like when I'm there, feet on the ground. And I know what that kind of, those kind of terrain features and that breakup should provide. Even though, even though when you're, if before you step foot in there, you look at it on Google Earth and you're just, oh, that's just another ridge on the side of a mountain, really. I mean, it's when it's all a two-dimensional flat, 
mm-hmm. you know, it's really, it's really quite impossible. Yep. But you're saying once you've been there and you've, you've said, okay, I've looked at this hillside 20 times on Google earth mm-hmm. and now I've actually stepped foot on it. I can put two and two together now and start using those as indicators of like, oh, here's another ridge that's yep. simply, I got you. Yep. And so I have you know, on my Google Earth, and I don't know if it works or not. I, honestly, there's no science behind any of this. I've said that. That's my disclaimer. I won't say it again. That's because mule deer hunting is an art, not a science. Well, so <laughs> I go in and I've got markers on different ridges. And I don't know. See, this is the one thing I would love to get into the names of all the plants. It's something I haven't done yet in my hunting career. What is that? Ecolo- ecology? Botany, I don't Bot- know. Botany's growing things. Don't ask me what stuff is ecology? like that. Dude, I'm in finance. <laughs> I'm not into plants. Yeah. So, so, but I can tell you, mule deer really like this, right? Whatever this is. Yeah. I know what that looks like. And I know this ridgeline faces this way in this part of the country. And that usually likes to grow right there. And so I have markings in Google Earth different colors for different facing slopes and such so that I can quickly zoom out and I can mark a new area that I'm looking at and see how that relates in its, in the, in its orientation to other areas that I know. Then I can zoom because I do think there's something to the North South, the North slope, the South slope, the Southeast facing slope and all those things and different vegetation. We know it all. There's going to be consistency. And that's there. That's some of the 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 time that it takes and boots on the ground because I don't know what grows where unless I see it, and then I can relate what I've seen to other areas that face the same direction, maybe the same altitude, mm-hmm. and they've got a ridge line that looks about the same, and you start to connect similar areas. And, and funny enough, mule deer like those areas, right? Elaborate on north, south, east, west. What are you looking for there? What do, what do mule deer typically, how do they act? I don't know. I mean, what I'm looking for, I don't, I don't know exactly maybe what you're asking, but what I'm looking for is we've all seen north slopes that are just absolutely covered with timber. Mm-hmm. Um, every once in a while you see a slope that's oriented just a little bit, maybe facing, uh, I'm trying to think of, I'm looking at Google Earth in my mind right now and I'm thinking of slopes and whether they're facing slightly southwest, right? And so they get, and they've got prominent peaks and they get shaded earlier in the afternoon and you're going to have better moisture there or vegetation higher, longer, or different things like that. And so it's it's just, so if you looked at Google Earth with me on my computer, you would see slopes that are marked in different colors to designate so that when I'm, when I'm looking at something, I can immediately zoom out and say, okay, this is basically the same as this slope over here that I hunted three years ago. Right. And, and this was because this was a, uh, Northeast facing slope with scattered pine because there was a, a snow slide that came yep. through there. They, they bedded here and here and here. Yeah. And, and their yeah. feeding areas right over here. Does this feeding area in this new area that I haven't been to yet look like the feet, look anything like what I, where I've been and where, and then I can go in and scout that with my feet on the ground and see what it looks like. But everyone's going to have their own methodology for how they file information away on Google earth. Right. And, and I prefer Google earth. I don't use any 
of the the stuff on my phone because I'm afraid that they're all owned by hunters and <laughs> someone's going to have all my data. That's stupid, but Jen, I'm like, yeah, I'm not putting my stuff on Onyx because somebody owns that data. Never thought about that. <laughs> I've got a nephew, uh, and and we every time we would go out this summer, he was marking things on Onyx, and I was like, oh hell no, <laughs> somebody's looking at that. And he he you know he posts a lot of stuff, um, and you know, all he's got to do is kill one 200 incher and somebody's going to pull that up. All the guys at Onyx are just all of a sudden start killing 200 inch bucks. 200 inch mule deer are hard to come by. So when they show up, I mean, I would pay attention if I had access to that data. You can't tell me that somebody else isn't going to. (laughs) No, I don't know how it works. I'm not accusing anyone of anything. (laughs) I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I know they may sponsor your show. You're a typical big buck hunter, you know, it's typical. It's like finding a place where big brown trout hang out, man. You don't just give that stuff up. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of that, welcome to social media, by the way. Notice that you start you made what one post is all, but I'm, you're you put your toe in the water and I made you, a post. Yeah. I've been deliberating how I want to enter that if I want to enter that because I love I love following certain people. I, I'm I'm motivated by the content they have out there. But I've always been concerned about what, what do I want to say and how do I want to say it and does anyone want to hear it, right? But I got so much enjoyment out of reading the comments on Hoyt's uh, Instagram page when they posted that deer yeah, and scrolling through and listening and reading what people had to say that I was like, Oh, I've got to, I've got to throw some stuff out there. Cause there'll be some folks that have something that'll make me laugh. It's yeah, And the reason I could laugh is because as I went through that is I, I don't do this for, and that's a key is, is the why behind what I'm doing. Right. And because I don't do this because for recognition or for free gear or anything else, not that doing it for those reasons is wrong. I don't. And therefore I have absolutely no attachment to what anyone says. And it is pure comedy when someone starts talking about steroids and high fences relative to a deer that I've killed, because I'm laughing. It's like, I laugh out loud. My wife's like, what are you laughing at? I'm like, you got to read what this guy said about this deer that I killed. And she, and she's like, well, that's mean. And I'm like, no, that's just funny <laughs> because I've been there. Yeah. I mean, uh, I wanted to get on there and they were like, well, how high is the fence on that one? And I wanted to say about 12,800 feet. <laughs> right. And it keeps out the riffraff. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. I, you know, the best stories come from bad decisions. So how? maybe, maybe getting on Instagram will be one of those. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting world. How, uh, how many tags do you try to uh, draw or like what, what's an ideal year for you of tag numbers? Well, right now it's one mule deer hunt and then I have Utah and Utah is a backup state. It's it's your home state. Yeah. It's my home state. So I'm always going to have a mule deer tag and an elk tag here. And I haven't, I, like I said, I scouted, I found a couple of decent bucks. Haven't spent a single day hunting in Utah because it just didn't work out. The priority was um, a Colorado hunt. I think I spent 12 days this year and things just haven't worked out to get out otherwise. When I, I, I'm looking five to seven years out and, and mule deer are in a precarious position. You know, we've had some bad winters in the little area that I live in other parts. Of, I, I talked to some biologists. I think I want to say it was like 70 to 80% mortality rate for fawns last year okay. in that unit and like 40 to 50% mortality rate for adults. Uh, 
that's mule deer. Um, weather forecasters are saying we're going to get a phenomenal snow skiing year this year, and that doesn't usually bode well for mule deer. Yeah, another bad winter. So, so you know, I as far as optimal deer tags, I'm looking out at five to seven years from now where I really hope that I can have two quality mule deer hunts per year. And that may be too much. I mean, that could represent 30 days of hunting, which translates into, you know, a lot of scouting leading up to it. So I don't know if I'll be able to get to that point. Optimal for me is, is really if I can get one mule deer over 190 on the ground. And if that takes, I, I don't know if you can spread yourself thin and do that. I just, I can't, but I don't have like I have this dream of of having my own llamas instead of renting them from you <laughs> and being retired and spending the entire summer walking around in the mountains with llamas and, and big glass because the llamas will pack it. Yeah, 95 BTXs. It's funny. Uh, I think of a podcast that I was listening to with uh, Randy Ulmer, and I've actually listened to it a couple of times. I think it's uh, – I don't even know who it was with, but um, – I mean, the guy's just been killing massive deer for solid for like 15, 10 or 15 years now, you know. He's the guy. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, it's, it is, it's easy to sit back and again, the social media filter where every, we, it's like we all, we look at everyone as if they're in the same situation as us. And then we make a comparison based on that. You know, that's the downfall. You know, that's my advice to you is don't fall into that trap on social media. And, and so, this Randy Omer thing, like it's easy for us as working class guys that, like you said, are working 40 to 60 plus hours a week and have, you know, a typical one to three week vacation, even a year or whatever. And I mean, let's be honest, you know, maybe one week of that's going to be gobbled up with family stuff or vacations or whatever the wife's got to have planned or whatever. Um, it's easy to sit back and say, man, like I'm just not getting it done. Well, you hear Randy Olmer talking. He's like, "Oh, I scout from July fifteenth until the day the Colorado deer hunt opens in August." You know, and he spends almost 45, 30, 30 45 days on the mountain just scouting. You know, that's a, oh man, that that would be the dream. But guess what? That's for one tag. Yeah, and honestly, I don't think that's excessive. That that would be cool to be able to do that because. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to see a few pictures from Randy through a friend of mine, not directly, um, and know that he's got one animal in mind. Um, that entire, you know, so by the time the, again, by the time the, the season opens, it's almost anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah, it's just a formality at that point. Yeah. <laughs> you already know everything the buck's doing. Um it, so along those lines, and I'm just curious what your, you know, I, I obviously know what your tactic is, but um, I was just listening to another podcast. I think this was Mike Duplan on Cast. I, I listen to so many podcasts, they all blend sometimes, but, you know, and, and, and they were talking about this grass is greener uh, mentality of, you know, the, the idea of the best mule deer hunting, if you live in the West, at least the five or six states up and down the Rocky mountain front, you know, Rocky mountain range is probably in your home state. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, so what is it or why is it that you 
like you said, you didn't hunt Utah this year and you only hunted Colorado. Why is that? Why, why not just hunt? Cause could, there's just as big a bucks right here, right out of your office window. Um, you know, up on the, the famed Wasatch. Yep. Like, what is it about that that makes you say, nah, I'm going to go here instead of hunting right here out of your house where you could probably scout more or whatever. That started, that progression or that idea in my mind started a long time ago because there are so, because the Wasatch Front is archery only or a certain section of it, right? It doesn't have the carrying capacity, right? I mean, it, it is the Wasatch Front. There are homes everywhere. Yeah. But they don't harvest a ton of deer off of there. And so you have really good quality. You can have a fun hunt. They're just a ton of hunters. And that, that kind of turned me away from it. It's combat hunting. Yeah, yeah, early on. Um, whereas I don't know the numbers behind it. I know that just, again, going through the early research... It, it was very apparent to me that just the sheer number of mule deer in Colorado meant that I was going to see more animals and potentially higher quality animals. I don't know how this works, but somehow Colorado has better winter carrying capacity, winter range. And I drive around Colorado and drive around Utah, and, and um, I guess I can see how that works. But I think Utah has some phenomenal opportunity. It's just not handled properly. Mm-hmm. It's easy for me to say because I'm in the cheap seats. But but that's what led me to it's a numbers game. Right? So I'm going to go to Colorado because they can carry more deer um, in the winter. There is country that I can go further into in the summertime to get further away from more people and those people are more dispersed. And then Colorado has the, it's just a phenomenal tag system. I mean, this is turning into the Colorado branded <laughs> pot, you know, uh, but there are a limited number of archery tags in every unit. And Utah, for whatever reason, didn't go about things the same way. I don't know how, you know, Wyoming, I think I can pull a decent tag every three to five years for an area that I'd like to hunt. Somehow Colorado's managed it so that if I don't get the tag that I really want, there's still probably 180 to 190 inch buck over here in my option B, C, and D units. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can probably find a landowner voucher and they may only give out 70 archery tags for a unit or 120. And that's a big swath of land. So I'm not going to be seeing, you know, 15 other guys on the ridge. Well, and I, you know, I think, uh, you know, you're, your, your instinct would tell you like, man, if you're going to be a guy that's going to chase big mule deer and that's going to be your hunt for the year, like just stick to your home court, so to speak, because you can put in that time. But with you, I think the answer is it's because you are willing to do those bonsai scouting trips. If you weren't, I think it would be a disaster. Oh, yeah. I think, you know what I'm saying? Like if you were trying to drive, you know, like I did this year, <laughs> I'm a prime example. I'm the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, and I broke my our cardinal sin that like you're, you're talking about of, man, if you're going to go hunt these out of state units and you're going to try to kill big bucks, um, especially if it's a unit that you've never been in, you got to put boots on the ground once, you know, and I didn't do that. You know, one thing leads to another, uh, you know, doing this, doing that summer rolls by, you get busy with work or whatever. And it was like, gosh, man, I just didn't commit to that 
you know, 12 hour drive that I should have and the bonsai weekend scouting trip. And I sh like, I would have been better off to pull one hunting day and take a Friday, do the bonsai two, three weekend deal. And because, you know, it's a prime example. What happened to me on that archery hunt in Colorado is I get in there and the first place I bomb into, I mean, it was, it wasn't a brutal hike necessarily, but it was, it was pretty good distance. And then once you're in there, you know, it is brutal. It doesn't matter where, you know, you're up, down, up, down, up, down or whatever. I got a little bit sick. That didn't help. And then it was like, man, by the time I kind of came to, so to speak, and realized like, this isn't where I want to be. I tried to hike out. I, I get sick. I recover a day. And then I try to hike, you know, 10 miles into the next spot, which I think was the spot. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the, the sour part is like, I think that was the spot. And it just was too late. You know, I could be next year, but if I had done that on the scouting trip in July, like I should have, you know, so that to me is the asterisk. Like if it, like you don't have to hunt, you know, live in Arizona, hunt Montana. It don't matter if you want to kill the big buck though, you gotta, you gotta treat it as if you're in your backyard and you've got to put in that amount of scouting trips, you know, which is at least one. Probably, probably two. I don't know how many, how many times do you typically go? At least two, but, but one of those is in the unit that I'm most likely to get into. And then another trip would be into the unit that I'm not going to make it into. And mm -hmm. that's a minimum. That's a minimum. It, you, you bring up some, I think anyone could refute what I'm saying about the scouting trips and I can go in and, and in a worst case scenario, it's like what you just pointed out. You may have success on year three of that hunt because your hunts have been your scouting trips. And that's a way to go about it as well. I mean, the, the long game is, is certainly worthwhile if that's the time that you have. And I agree with everything that you said. Um, if, if I didn't have the opportunity to go out there and look at things the way I do, um, I think I would spend more years and eat more tags to, to kill a decent deer in Colorado than I would if I just stayed right here in my home state. Because like you just said, it's a 30 minute drive for me to any trailhead on the Wasatch front. Yeah. Um, and we know there are some quality animals up there. Yep. And there are guys that do it. I mean, that's some of the names that take massive deer off there every year. Yep. And they live up there on the Wasatch front in the summertime. So you can do it. And, and guys do that in, in Idaho. Guys do that in the freaking sagebrush flats in Idaho. You know, they live there in the summertime and every single year, the same guys are killing massive deer. Um, so it, I just happen to be enamored with the high country and there's something different about the high country in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. It's really Wyoming's close. I'm starting to learn. Yeah. Wyoming's close. And, uh, but, but like you said, I mean, that's, that's just a state where, you know, if you're a resident like I am going to be this next year, then mm -hmm. it's like, it's a no brainer. Oh yeah. You know, but if you're not, then it's, you know, why wouldn't you be going to Colorado zero to three point units instead of now pushing five to, you know, for those same type of five to nine or 10, you know, for region G or whatever it's at. Yep. So anyway, yep. um, talk about your optic setup and what you've kind of settled on at the moment. So my optic setup right now is built light, uh, kind of for the scouting. I just, I have 12s. And every time I think about replacing the 12s, I can't. They're just 12. Uh, there's the Suaro ELs, and they're worth every penny that I, you know, that I threw down on those things. And then just a little 65 millimeter spotter. 
During the hunt, I like to have a pair of eights around my neck and the twelves and the spotter in my backpack. And I don't know, it's because in tighter situations and in a lot of situations with a bow in your hand, I like to have little lightweight eights. And when I say eights, I'm not talking eight by forties. I'm talking those little tiny things, the eight by thirty twos or the eight by whatever they are. I've, I pack the same thing. I have the eight by thirty old SLCs, like twenty year old SLCs. And I went super lightweight. I got a pair of the. I love a pair of the SCs or SLs, the Swarovskis. They're like the pocket binocular. Yeah, just a little tiny. Yeah, but I, I didn't spend that money. I got the uh, the Leopold. But for the hunt, I really like having those eights around my neck because when you're in close quarters pulling the 12s up when you're inside of a hundred yards and you're trying to get a bead on what's, you still use glass on a stock. Yep. Got my bow in my left hand and usually you, well, everyone that's been there knows you pull up a set of, you pull up your binos and you could be within 50 yards and still want to look at the cover and what you're, what you're faced with. Well, and I, I don't know that this is necessarily a hunting tactic that you use a lot in the terrain that you're in, but if you do ever get going through some thick timber and you're still hunting, um, you would you would think that just even just 30 yards or whatever, if it's thick, what you can see with your eyes, you'd still be able to see with your binos. It's, a, it's just a mind-blowing experience, really, when you can use that zoom to roll back and forth and yeah. get the different levels yeah. of, of depth of field. It's nuts. Like all of a sudden you're like, oh, geez, like there's a deer bedded right there. And then you pull your binos out and he's just, he's through enough branches or whatever. You can't, you just can't pick it up with your bare eyes. It's crazy. But yeah, having those eights on your chest, I'll never, whether I'm packing 15s or 12s, I don't think I can ever get away from that. Cause those on a stock, like you said, they're just, it's priceless. And the 12s are, uh, I can't express the just what the ELs do on a set on a, on a tripod. My dream is to, I I'm, I'm at a point where I think I'm willing to pack the weight of a BTX. <laughs> um, I just don't know if I'm willing to drop the cabbage yet, but I played around with Corey's. He let me borrow his BTX uh, setup last winter. So I had it in my house and I was looking at wintering range and then in my backyard on the river, on the stream there, there are some bald eagles that will come in. And um, so I had a chance to do some birding and just <laughs> just go back and forth with the single lens versus the BTX setup. I think there's a depth and color perception with both eyes open that even at a lower magnification, provided me with better detail and I could see things better uh, with the BTX. So I think within the next couple of years, I'll go from a 65 millimeter spotter. And ultimately, if, if I make the investment in the summertime, I'll run the full 95 BTX because I'm not packing a bow or anything That's else. That's what I was just going to ask is would that, would the season type of time of year dictate, you know, you might, because especially, I mean, when you go into summer scout mode, you're really not trying to get too close to anything, you know, especially if you yeah. find one, you're trying in all honesty, we all, I mean, as far back as possible would be the best. I, and so before we get too far off of that topic, I will tell you some of the more, the better success I've had is when I've just gently nudged animals. 
And this is something that I said I wouldn't share uh, <laughs> because my, my nephew was asking me about some things. Like, hey, do you? And I was like, oh, there's just certain things you don't talk about. <laughs> but gently nudging mule deer and seeing what they do when you're an archery hunter is, that's a game changer when the hunt's on, knowing what their escape route is and knowing how hard they're pushed, based on how hard they're pushed, which way they'll go. Um, can put you in a very good position. So yes, generally speaking, I stay as far away as possible. And there are other times where I'm just covering the numbers. You've heard a lot of guys that hunt mule deer say something like that. But like this year, I went in and, and I was just hitting basin after basin. And I was like, okay, I counted this many deer and just writing it down in my journal. Boom, 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 boom. And I didn't stop to look unless there was something that really, I was like, that guy's got potential. You know, yeah. I'm coming back here. And so covering the numbers versus, you know, that secondary scouting trip where you're really honed in on something. And I do think that if the situation is right and you're first week in August, second week in August, you've got a few weeks before the hunt starts, you, know, you, you gently nudge an animal and see what, how they respond and where they go and set you up for success when you have a bow in your hand. Are you willing to tell me that if you, let's say you've got a 195-inch deer that you've scouted all summer, you would gently nudge him? If it's, uh, if it's the first part of August, he'll be back. I know he will. I've, I've, and when we say gently, when, explain your definition of gently nudge, because I, I think we're on the same page. I just want the listeners to hear. All, all he has to do is with one of his senses, he needs to become aware that you're aware of him. And, and that, that can happen from 300 yards, or maybe you just have to slowly walk in until he's aware that you know, he knows you know he's there. And you know when mule deer know that, right? <laughs> and, and Every and, time I try to hunt him. <laughs> yeah. and, and just as gently as you can, you make him know that you know he's there. And I, then you just move on like any other backpacker. Well, two, so two thoughts come to mind. First of all, I kind of got the um, butterflies just talking about this. Um, to me, as a like an athlete, right, it's, it's like when you get on that level with your competitor where you just know that you're going to beat them, you're willing to tell that. My dad used to do this to me all the time. We were playing basketball as a kid, <laughs> as a kid you know, like I didn't have a chance. And so he would tell me like, like, okay, which way do you want me to go? You know, and it would just, oh man, it would just drive you nuts because you knew like he's literally telling you what, how he's going to beat you and you still can't do anything about it. And mm -hmm. that's the feeling that I got as you're explaining, nudging a buck, purposely going in there because you know what your, what your purpose is there and why you're doing it. Um, yeah. The second thought that came to mind is it all depends, I think, on the state that you're hunting. Yeah, that's true. I think that in a state like, I don't know, you know, Wyoming or somewhere that's just a backcountry of Idaho or somewhere that's that's not a tourist state like Colorado is. I mean, a Colorado, depending on where a buck is. Now, if he's, I don't know, but if he, I mean, if there's bucks that are bedded within a drainage of a main, a 14 or, or a yeah. main trail or something, don't kid yourself. People are walking by him a lot. Yep. You know, it's happening all summer. And so you can't go into those places in Colorado, for example, without it happening. And so for him to see a human in mm. on August 3rd, it's really just not the big deal to him. You bring up a great point. And, and I, 
I because I've had the luxury of I, I initially started going into a lot of backcountry situations, purposefully looking at mapping out every single trail. Not this trailhead. I'm getting far enough from the trailhead that that's not a concern. It's where the trails pass and how far away from any human activity is this. But I've had enough time to realize that, oh man, there are a lot of good deer that hang out. And and you look at it on Google Earth and you're like, that's way too close to that trail that passes through there. Mm-hmm. And then you get back there and you're like, oh, there's a little cubby hole right there. And they don't they, they walk. They don't need to. They don't need much. They don't. They don't. They don't need. They don't need an entire basin that's out of sight. They just need, they just need one little. Yeah, just a few rocks and they yeah. blend right in. And, and, and I've watched them and, and backpackers will walk right by them. Yeah. And, and you're right. If you're into a, a part of the, I've. I've and, you, and you know, you know when you're in those units of just like, okay, I'm on a buck here that's probably never seen a human mm-hmm. type of a situation or. I'm in a place where there's been people here all set. Like you just kind of have that feel and you got to make your judgment call there. But Well, even in Colorado, they, this guy came back. Uh, he did get bumped during my scouting trip. I didn't kill this deer this year that, that I showed you the picture of on my phone. Um, that deer got chased all over the place by another hunter um, the first few days of the hunt. And I don't ever, other than when it was completely out of sight or dark, I don't ever remember seeing that deer settle down for a moment and you've hunted deer like that i've hunted other deer like that in different states where uh, they don't put their nose down for two seconds but they're not popping it up and looking around and there's nothing going on i mean i'm 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 800 yards away from them you're like what what did what's going on and And, and they are on edge and this buck this year that i didn't i didn't ever get on same exact thing so you're right there are animals but for the most part i mean if you've got three weeks and you know the area, he's going to be somewhere yeah. when you come back. You hope you can pick him up in that same area and uh, have an ambush hunt. Interesting. Man, I feel like we, we could just we could just nerd out on t- tactics like all all night. We I can't though. I want to get to the, you know, we're we're going to split this into two episodes. I I am I like I like this time of year I think is a good time to just reflect on gear. Yeah. Like aside from optics or whatever, um, like actual backpack gear that has nothing really to do with the hunt. And I'm just curious real quick, if you have anything that you either, you know, the typical questions like what, you know, however you want to answer this, but something that you are excited about trying next year, something that you tried this year that you loved, something that you never leave home without, however you want to answer that, but just something gear related, you know, a valuable takeaway for gear maybe. Yeah, there's the, um, what is that chair that I started using a few years <laughs> Equinox. ago? The Crazy Creek chair. Crazy Creek. And it's just for, it, it adds more weight to my pack than I ever imagined I would. And it's, I don't know, when I say that, I don't know if it's 16 ounces. But. Um, well, we didn't talk about animals, pack, uh, pack llamas, but it, it's but once you once you Yeah, but once you're there, so everything gets in nice on pack llamas. And then once you're there, this is a chair that I fold up. It goes in my backpack all day, every day, because you spend most of your time behind glass. You get somewhere, you sit down and you glass. And this chair allows you Wait to Wait a minute. That. Are you getting old enough that you need to sit on a chair oh, every time? <laughs> I sit in a crazy I, creek, man. I think I'm right behind you, man. It is. I, it's, every year it goes by, I'm like, 
freaking sitting in these rocks in the dirt. It's just I can carve out any sort of a little nook in rocks or wherever, slam my crazy creek in there, and it has adjustable webbing on the sides so that I can adjust it up and it supports my core so that I can sit behind binoculars on a tripod indefinitely. Because yeah. I, I get that lower back. Man, we sound like a couple of men, but I'll just get that lower back ache if you're sitting like kind of hunched over on a, just the, the dirt. Yeah. For too long, like, and you've got to do the, you know, stand up or whatever. Just look at the crazy <laughs> creek chairs because they're the ultimate glassing machine. They, they, <laughs> they change glassing the same way tripods and 12 power ELs do okay. <laughs> because they allow you to actually utilize those tools. It's as, you're telling me it's as big of a deal as glassing with your binos on a tripod for the first time? Yeah, because you'll actually <laughs> sit there. Exactly. You will, you'll actually sit there long enough to pick things out because you're sitting there in comfort. The crazy creek is worth the wait, man. <laughs> like, it, it's that big. I hear you. I hear you. What um, else? Uh, you know, I, I had the luxury of trying a new, a new tent this year. I'm always in search for, of, of a better tent. The perfect shelter. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that I found it yet. Everything has its drawback. Yep. And you only find that when the wind hits or when the storm comes. And so I, there was nothing, you know, I've. I hate, I hate to say this, but I've, I've been doing the backcountry backpack hunting long enough now that anything almost seems like a waste of money. There's not a, I don't see a game changer. Um, I'm willing to try some things, but I haven't come across a true game changer for quite a while. You mean except for the crazy creek chair? The crazy creek chair, man. That that was <laughs> because that beats the pants off of the piece of foam that I had cut out to sit on. Well, I, I feel like it's, you know, it's like bows. Right. I mean, love it or hate it or whoever you shoot, it doesn't matter. I, I'll argue that, you know, it just every year it doesn't get that much better. The technology is kind of caught up for the time being, you know, to where, man, bows just haven't changed a ton. And definitely not in the last five years, Yep. even in the last 10 years, you know, the relative to it's just not that big of a change and, and gears starting to feel that way you know mm-hmm. um there's there's i mean once cl- like clothing once clothing came out and like sitka and kuyu and those guys first light now and all these people that have um the the layering systems yep. and that was a game changer oh, yeah. you know we went from cloth when i was growing up just walmart whatever Levi's and whatever we weren't doing what we're doing now either but I was just I'm I'm reading Mike Eastman's Mulder book and you know he's in there uh David Long too in one of his books I mean they're in there in Levi's you know he's at 12,000 feet 10 miles deep probably and in the middle of a a six inches of snow in Levi's killing these big old bucks and you know we would look at that now and go dude that's not even safe like your life's in, you know, but that's just, but clothing, clothing, you know, that big change that clothing went through yep. whenever that was 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, game, like that was just night and day different, but yeah, I don't, I also don't feel like a lot of gear has just really, now there's products, you know, I, f- I feel like there's little products that come out that you're like, Oh, like, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. You know, um, you know, whatever it is mounting systems for binos on tripods that, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, that's just a product that changed the game or whatever. Yep. But yeah, just innovating, like building a tent differently at this point. It's like, man, and, I don't know. And I've just been testing and going through gear for so long that it's, you bring up bows. It's 
the same example. This year, I'm stoked out of my mind because I'm not breaking in a new bow. I'm not setting up a new system, I should say. Finding the right arrows and finding, you know, and setting everything up. It's done. I just get to shoot all winter, right? Dude, I it's funny you bring that up because I, I hit the brakes this year. I was like, no. And I've done it in the past, mm-hmm. mostly because of finances when I was younger. It yeah. was like I just couldn't afford, like I couldn't be the guy that was changing bows every year. Yeah. You know, now if I wanted to, like, you know, I could make it work. And I'm just like, nah. Like, it's it's stupid, frankly. Yep. You know, and any guy who says that it's not, you know, I don't want to use his name. And everyone will know who I'm talking about, hopefully. But, you know, he, you know, he makes this comment, like, even if bows, even if the next year's bow gets 1% better. I'm going to, I'm going to change and I'm going to shoot it. Well, he's a sponsored, he's the sponsored athlete yeah. for a certain bow brand. Right. And that's all fine and dandy, but you can't tell me that that 1%, if it's even 1% isn't a smaller percentage than the benefit that you get from using a bow two years in a row that, you know, inside and out, you know, exactly how that site moves, you know, exactly how, it feels like, you know what I'm saying? Like that to me is a bigger percentage increase, mm-hmm. quote unquote, than the 1% from just switching the bow because of what you said. It's like one, it's like one step forward and 14 steps back. Cause you're like, okay, new arrows. And I got to yep. change out my cut. I got to shoot in my factory string so that I can use that as a backup for th- six weeks. And then I got to put a custom string on yep. and then I've got to go in. And if you, you know, hopefully you find someone that knows how to tune it. And if not, you know, and you know how it is. I mean, I, and like I was Randy Ulmer speaking to him, he was talking about bows and and this was years and years ago, but he's like, I used to get him to ship me six bows because only one would shoot. Yeah. And it's not that bad anymore because technology's come a long, long ways. That's right. But it's still a possibility that just because you switch a bow, even if the, the overall concept is better, doesn't mean that next bow, I've had it happen where I'm like, crap, I sold a bow a couple of years ago and I'm like. I picked up the new one and I'm like, frick, because of, you know, they're not all the same either. The specs change and they're and guys aren't honest with themselves. Like, you know, if you're just like, oh, I'm just going to shoot a 31 and a half inch bow. Cause I'm going to shoot the next newest bow and you're six foot four, you know, and the, and the previous year's bow was 34 inch bow. Yeah. And you won't be honest with yourself that you don't group that second bow as tight as the next one. It's like, well, was that, where is that 1%? You know what I'm saying? Like, so there's just a lot, man. I'm glad you brought that up. If you have someone, look, there are people that are in a position, whether they work at a bow shop or they have friends in high places in the archer industry, where it could make sense to set up a brand new bow every single year. But I go back, I default to Randy Ulmer because he's very meticulous, I find, uh, in the way he talks and about things. I'm like, okay, this guy's detail oriented. And I don't even think he switches bows every year because he sets them up himself and he knows to get the bow to where he wants it, what kind of journey that is. Yeah. And not only, I mean, the other reason why I'm stoked about this year is I'm shooting a bow that I really think, uh, I, I'm, I don't foresee changing this bow for years to come. What are you shooting? I have the uh, RX3, mm-hmm. I think it is. Carbon. Yeah. Yeah. So 34 axle axle. I, I used to be so, I could tell you the spec of every single bow on the market. <laughs> the last four years, I've forgotten everything and, and don't research it. I just know that I have a bow that is balanced and shoots right now so that I don't want to touch anything. Yep. 
Uh, it's phenomenal. And so this year, and it's the same with gear. It's like, uh, I don't want to deal with, you know, a new tent. I don't want to deal with a different backpack. I don't want to deal Amen. with. And even if what you have, you don't feel is necessarily the best tent or whatever on the market. I'm telling you, sometimes the evil that you know is better than the evil that you don't know. Yeah. You know, because you'll switch it out July 29th or whatever, and you'll, you'll head in and you won't know exactly how this tent sets up. And something will happen differently. You get in that windstorm and, oh, man, this tent didn't react the way that I thought the other one used to. And all of a sudden you're, you know, you're sheltered, you're screwed or whatever. So the reason I tested a new tent this year, I will say scouting trip, massive summer thunderstorm comes through. Um, A tent that I've used for the last four years, five years. I think the seams or something just finally broke down being, I mean, I was trying to do the math and I'm like, okay, scouting trips plus hunting trips, four or five years. Can't remember how long I've had the tent. You know, that's a hundred some days Hundreds or whatever. Nights, yeah. yeah. And, and that tent's sitting out in the sun while I'm out there. So for whatever reason, I set it up, thunderstorm comes in. I have pictures on my phone. I didn't sleep. I was in a down sleeping bag at altitude, you know, a full day's hike in and there's where the water actually pooled. There's a pool of water about 12 inches. And in, it looked like about a, a Frisbee that was about three inches deep inside my <laughs> in tent. The tent. Yeah. I was like, well, I'm glad I discovered that before the hunt. No, and don't, don't, don't mistake but, what I'm saying. Like, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm always, I mean, that's why I asked the question. I'm always looking and funny. thinking new gear, but I'm, yep. I'm just a lot more hesitant than I was, you know, five years ago or whatever. To just say, yep, I'm just going to get a new this and a new that and try a new one every single year. You know, if something that I have works, I mean, I've been running that same. Kafaru can't get me to run a different bag. Like, and not that they're, they're even trying, but yeah. they, they, you know, I'm, I'm running a 22 mag and I'll be danged if like they, I mean, I've got a brand new, I can't even remember the name of it. It's embarrassing because I can't even remember the name. I think it's the fulcrum or whatever yeah. it is. I, I won't use it because that 22 mag is just, I know it. I know inside and out it's perfect. I know exactly where everything is and just yep. like, anyway. Anyway, we don't need to get too far. Unless you got some last. No, I had a couple of thoughts there, but it you're, you're exactly right. I As much as, as, as a, of a gear geek as I used to be, there's also one component that you and I share, uh, one element that you and I share that really makes the gear discussion a totally different and that's the llamas <laughs> Dude. that is for what i enjoy and where i enjoy backcountry hunting and having used pack horses or had horse packers take me in uh, having tried pack goats right and then having done it the old-fashioned way where i just put it all on my back and take 15 hours to get where i'm going so put those four, I'm just curious what your list of preference would be for like a high country, early season archery hunt, uh, horses, llamas, goats on your back. What would be your order of preference? So I don't know how they fare out in the cold weather, but I've got a rifle hunt with my son planned next year. He'll get back from Guatemala and I'm going to take him on a rifle hunt after my archery hunt. Next the year. llamas you're asking? Yeah. Oh, they're built for it. That's what I thought. So here's the deal. There's not even a close second place. <laughs> now, 
you can get a llama that's got a hairbrain just like you can get any other animal that's a little hairbrain and they can be uh, a pain in the arse if you if things go wrong but yeah. arnie you guys went with arnie a couple dude, times don't even talk about it but it but going in and coming out was it was was a gem right but if you didn't do something right and didn't tie him up right um i thought we were going to leave a, a, a llama on the mountain and i was like well i'm buying a llama but anyway that's the worst case scenario with those things because once you have the packs on them yeah. Oh, there is no better way to get around. And the key is, for me, we used packers for a lot of years. And so I, would, I don't know if I would put horse packers even at number two because I want to be mobile in the backcountry. And if I'm going in with a horse packer, I'm taking gear. So when I think of horses, though, I'm like... <sighs> You're a horse guy, though. So you're, yeah. you're, keeping, you're keeping them with Riding, you at camp. Yeah, me taking horses in, that's at the bottom for me, I mean, it's a pain. It, yeah. So first of all, I've been with people that are taking care of their horses and, and I haven't camped. There are very few places that I've camped in recent years where I would have anywhere to put horses. I would have had to drop elevation. Yep. Right. Um, or in Utah, they're going it's to. It's now affecting your, it's affecting your hunting. Boom. They're going to, they are going to dictate as much where I camp yep. and when I hunt and when I've got to be back to camp and what I've got to do. So it's, it's like being a freaking, it's like having a camera on a hunt. Yeah, it, it, it's a whole nother, it, yeah. It's a pain in the neck. So first, second, third, I mean, I even, I probably would have to put goats as number two. Hmm. They're interesting little personalities, but llamas, goats, and again, for mobility sake, I would almost go off of my back and then I would call the horse packer to come and pick things up. Yeah. Give them the coordinates to pick up the meat. Yeah, and if it you know if it's a horse packer, that would be the one exception. We we've never really even done that again. Having used horses our whole lives, um, you know, it's either we're taking them in and they're ours and we're watching after them, or we don't have them. And so that's that would be the one the one little side note to that is if you can find you got to find a guy and then you know you got to be able to afford it and and it's. I haven't priced it out, but it's probably sixes from renting llamas or, or even more to do like a drop camp, you know? And, and I mean, you're getting the whole nine yards. You're going to have the Hilton, uh, of backcountry setups. If you got a horse packer, um, you know, but it, but it's nice. It's nice. Like you mentioned your hunt earlier where, um, you know, or maybe that was just us talking. I won't even say his name just in case, but you know, your buddy had killed. And so he can then pack up the llamas take them out, take a whole entire load of whatever meat, a whole buck or whatever, while you're still in there hunting, then he can bring them back in. And it, you know, to have animals in there, the problem with a horse packer is they usually only want to make, you know, or it's going to cost you. They only want to make one trip in and one trip out. And if you yeah. got three guys with tags and it's early, you know, it's first day of, of August 29th of the season or whatever, you know, and it's 65, 70 degrees or whatever it is, like, it's just not going to work. You know, yeah. one guy's going to pay or he's going to be packing it out on his back at that point or whatever. I've done that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've even done that when we had, I think we had llamas one year, but we didn't have enough llamas. Um, more llamas the merrier, man. <laughs> um, because I packed out my camp and my buck. Yeah. And that was, that was, uh, a lot of guys have done that. It's, yeah. it's no fun when you're 12 plus miles. Yeah. But, um, but I, I, the other thing on the llamas that I just think is, I, I try not to, 
I want to downplay them because I really don't want to put it uh, undue pressure on my buying llamas in the future or <laughs> renting llamas Dude. from you in the future. Yeah. But if, if, if I'm going on a backcountry archery hunt or like I said, on a rifle hunt, I just can't imagine because there are a lot of situations where you can get the llamas to the meat. I've always had to pack meat miles to get it to where the horse packer is willing yeah. to pick it up unless I wanted to pay, you know, obscene, obscene amounts of money to get the animal out of there. Um, so again, they, for the most part, they can go almost anywhere I can go. Yep. And when you want to be mobile and suddenly I've got my entire camp in, and this is the point we didn't get to, I've got my entire camp there and through my spotting scope as the crow flies five miles away is where I need to be because I finally found the animal that I want to chase the rest of the hunt. Um, I've got to relocate. And those, those are precious hours when you've only got 12 days to hunt. Yep. So usually you're going to do that in the late evening and in the night, set up camp in the dark and do those types of things to having llamas there to just throw everything on and relocate. Yep. Game changer. Yep. Hashtag backcountry logistics. Yeah. Find, find us on Instagram. Except Sh Shameless plug. Except for... <laughs> The, the weeks that I have the llamas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They will be not available from August, whatever, the first day of Colorado. Colorado's <laughs> changing it up, man. Oh, September man. Uh, one. Yeah. Real quick. What do you, what are you thinking? Like, cause that's a whole. I don't know the, I don't know the why behind it, but. Well, so, it's the only hunt that I have going on. So I don't care if they. So the archery, what they I'm just, I'm just going off my memory here. Cause I just looked at it, but the archery went from being the same uh, day number or no, it, it was always the first last Saturday. That's right. In August. Okay. Yep. And it went from that to September 1st, no matter what, no day matter it what, it's just a set day of the calendar. The thing I like about it is it gives me a little bit more of a gap between the Utah opener and the arch and the Colorado opener, which may give me an opportunity to do some Utah hunting before I go to Colorado years past. That's been tough when I'm trying to sell that from a work and a family perspective. Yeah. Right. And so I, I like that. And again, I don't care what they do with it. I don't care if it starts on, you know, leap year. Uh, well, the <laughs> only, I mean, the only thing that I thought was a little bit is that kind of drives me nuts about Colorado is those, if you don't have a muzzleloader tag, if you're there for archery, there was one of those years, depending on how the calendar lined up, where it was like the bow hunt started on the first or whatever day it was, you said the second or first and the muzzleloader hunt opened on like the seventh. Yeah. And it's like, you're doing the math and you're like, Oh, wait a minute. Like that's really cool. If you're a muzzleloader hunter that year, but if you're the bow hunter that only gets six days or whatever, before the muzzleloader guys come in there, yeah, maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe uh, there are a lot of muzzleloader photos coming out of Colorado with bucks in the velvet. I mean, that's, I mean, if I were into muzzleload hunting, I think that would be a phenomenal opportunity. No, that, yeah, that's what I'm saying. But, but if you're the bow hunter, I thought, you've normally had two weeks, right? Yep. Yeah. Two solid weeks. Now it's, it's going to change every year. I, and I've thought that the idea initially was to, to give the bow hunters more time alone and separate the bow hunters that are mule deer hunters from the bow hunters that are elk hunters and the beginning of the elk hunt. There was some discussion about all of that. I don't know how they landed on September 1st. I think yeah. that's a Tuesday or Wednesday next year. Well, just, uh, just go after those rifle tags, those late rifle tags. Cause they, uh, same deal with them. They got bumped. Like some of those third and Did fourth. Did they push them out? 
Well, it just it just I, and again, I didn't read enough to know what their uh, what the principle was, but like the like third rifle now, it's like it go it bumps from uh, it's not a set day of the month anymore, you know, or whatever whatever it was, and it was like oh now it's gonna roll back every like the Utah elk hunts do right? Oh yeah, it's gonna roll back every seven years or something where it's like oh this is the year to you know because all of a sudden. Like for some of those, I should pull it up. Some of those fourth season rifle tags were like starting later than they've ever started. And some of the third seasons were later and you know what I'm saying? So now the guys are going to play that game. Whereas before it was just a third season was a third season. And you just prayed that the weather hit during that hunt or whatever, you know, you didn't really care what year other than trying to time the weather, which is never a smart idea. I don't think on those, but now it's like, Easy. Anyway, we we're not. Anyway, well, man, I like it. We uh, we're gonna have a decision to make here. We'll get that other. Uh, we'll we'll hit pause here, and I'll talk to you of whether we get that other story recorded or not. Either way, I mean, this is a solid episode. And I hope there's some value to it. I no feel like um, there's uh, so many things have been said, and and I don't think there's a, there's a secret out there uh, on the mule deer front, but it's, it. But there isn't for anything out there with the way the world works and the technology Justin, that's out there. It's all a matter of applying it. Yeah. And, and man, you, I, like I've done this. I haven't done this for very long, but I've done it long enough. You can ask, you could ask 10 elite mule deer hunters the same question and they're all going to answer it slightly differently for the, you know, now there's going to be some things like, you know, the basic, basic crap, like don't skyline yourself and, <laughs> You know, use the wind and like just the stupid, obvious stuff, you know, but like, just like how to apply for hunts. And I mean, it's a, that's why I said when we started, I think is it's an art, man. Like it's not a science, it's an art. And I think that's, what's becoming beautiful about it is, um, you, you know, you pick up something from every conversation that you hear. Uh, it was like when I was playing sports and I'd go to these sports camps and, and I would go and some pitching coach that I had never messed with or had any lessons from in my life would tell me something completely out of left field from what I normally had been doing. And all the one guy finally said, he says, I'm not asking that you actually make all these changes. What I am asking is you just try it. If it works for you, keep it. And if not move on and yeah. keep doing what you're doing, you know, and that's, that's where I'm getting with, you know, having these conversations with guys like you is it's like, Oh, I've never thought of, maybe possibly getting on the level of nudging a big buck that I just to see, you know, yeah. or whatever. And so you try, you know, you just go through things and we're probably going to get some hate mail, uh, around September 15th from guys that are like, dude, I just blew up. <laughs> oh, it would be earlier than that, I guess. So it would be August yeah. 1st. Yeah, and if, August you don't 1st. See that, if you don't see that buck again, come the 1st of September, my bad. But uh. Justin's uh, Instagram handle. <laughs> just kidding. But yeah, I'd love to hear no, it. No, that, that, that's the thing, man, is it's an art. There's no right answer. There's just your answer. And that's what's, I think, beautiful about it. So, yeah, no, but I, I want to give you credit for coming on and uh, being willing to, you know, have the conversation and just say things that you can tell or like, you know, I'm not, it's not like you're giving away a honey hole or anything like that, but you're giving away years of experience, you know, and I, you know, it'll, whether it comes back to you or not, I hope it does, you know, but we appreciate it. Oh, thank you, man. It's, I, I, it's, it's quite a privilege. I don't know how to describe it. I feel 
you know, some of the names that you've mentioned as far as mule deer hunters, I definitely don't put myself in that category, but it's, it's very, I appreciate the opportunity to just share thoughts and ideas. I definitely have my opinion on things. <laughs> cool. Well, look for uh, part two of this. We'll get Justin on here, hopefully right now, maybe, maybe not, but I'll try to release uh, the story of, you know, this, this buck that you hunted in Colorado uh, relatively close to this one, regardless when we record it. So look for that. And yes, sir. And, uh, until next time. Thanks brother. Hey everybody. Thank you for listening to the finding Backcountry podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends, but the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform for notes and links to this and other episodes. Please visit findingbackcountry.com.